Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start in the um, 19th verse. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years young when he took Rebekah, the daughter of uh, Bethel, the Aramean, a Pateran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The older, the, the one shall be stronger than the, uh, than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read a story that has been reserved for us, may we see it more than just a story in antiquity. May we see how, um, how our lives are intertwined here. May we see how you have revealed yourself and how you work and who you are through the telling of the story, through the, the birth and the wrestling of, of, two, of two men that will become two nations, Lord. And most of all, may we look forward from this story forward to the coming of you, Jesus. And may you just, um, may you speak your gospel to our hearts even this morning. Lord, as we just sang to all the poor and powerless, that's us. We're the poor and the powerless. And we get to sing it from the mountains, how great you are. May you just proclaim your glory to us this morning from your word, through the preaching of your word, Lord. Lord, certainly I am poor and powerless. Would you fill me with your spirit that, we, that I may speak of the, 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 the marvelous mystery that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So as we're in the, the storyline of the Bible, 
And so, the, and that's where we are. We haven't just randomly chose Genesis chapter 25, but um, we're working our way in. We started in uh, early in January in Genesis, the first chapter and the first verse, and we're working our way all the way through. Hopefully we'll end up in Revelation chapter 21, and hopefully we'll, we'll end up there together, right? Hopefully that will occur. And so, um, but as we're here in Genesis chapter 25, one of the things throughout the storyline of the Bible that we want to do is we want to look for what are the what are the examples? What are the types? What are the patterns that are happening? And so let me give for you the pattern that's being set up here. It's already kind of, we've seen it, uh, glimpses of it in, in Abram to become an Abraham. And now we're seeing it um, even most assuredly, we're seeing it here in this. Here's the pattern that God chooses to work in surprising ways through unlikely people for his own glory. That as we read about the story of Abram and Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael, and as we get into even um, the story of Isaac, and as we get into especially the story where we're going to be today of Jacob, that what we're seeing is God working through a dysfunctional family. Now, I don't know if dysfunctional family resonates with you, but I understand dysfunctional family, right? And as we see this, this is what we're seeing is that God works through a dysfunctional family, that God, in fact, we could say this, that God chooses, God chooses to work in surprising ways through unlikely people for his own glory. Now, the focus since Genesis chapter 12 has been on a man, Abram, whose name has changed to Abraham. Last week, Pastor Sean left us off at the end of Genesis chapter two with the testing of Abraham. He's tested by God. He's told to sacrifice his son. And it's really a test, not just of Abraham's love for the Lord, but it's also a test of whether or not he believes the Lord, whether or not he has faith in the Lord, whether or not he believes and trusts in the promise that God has given to him. And what we see is he passes that test and when you think of Abraham in the Old Testament, here's what I want you to think of. I want you to think of God's divine sovereignty. That's what I want you to think about. Think about God's divine sovereignty coming to Abraham. You could think about Abraham's faith as well, but primarily I want you to think about God's sovereignty being shown to Abraham as he chooses Abraham and calls Abraham and says, come, follow me. And we see Abraham who believes God, Abraham who follows God. Now, Abraham doesn't do this perfectly. You could just see Ishmael and, uh, and Hagar and that story. But when the rubber meets the road, Abraham trusts. And, and chapter 22, it closed out with, uh, with Abraham and Isaac sacrificing a ram that God had provided. And last week, Pastor Sean said it pointed forward to Jesus, who is the substitute provided by God um, in, in our place for all of our unfaithfulness. And that's what the ram points forward to. That's about it. The end of chapter 22 is about the it for the end of Abraham's uh, life. I mean, in fact, even his life. In chapter 23, Sarah dies and she's buried. Abraham will be mentioned briefly in chapter 24 in his quest to find a, uh, a, a suitable wife for his son, Isaac. In chapter 25, Abraham will get married again have a bunch more children, and then he dies. He's 175 years old when he dies, and Isaac and Ishmael, they bury Abraham beside Sarah, and now the focus for a brief moment is upon Isaac. There's about 12 chapters for Abraham. 
There's only about three chapters of the book of Genesis that cover the life of Isaac. There's another 12 chapters that cover Jacob. In fact, from about Genesis 25 all the way for the remaining 25 chapters of the Bible cover Jacob and Jacob's children and only three chapters for Isaac. But this much we can say about Isaac. When you think about Isaac, if you think about Abraham, think of God's divine sovereignty. When you think about Isaac, I want you to think of God's divine faithfulness. That God makes a promise to a barren couple named Abram and Sarai, and God promises them. He promises Abram, I'm going to give you nations, descendants, people are going to come from your loins. He's like, wait a minute, I don't even have a kid, let alone multiple kids, not enough to make whole nations. And yet what we see in Isaac is God fulfills his promise. God is faithful to accomplish everything that he's promised. That when God makes a promise, he's faithful to accomplish what he has promised. And that's what he does in Isaac. And we don't have a ton on Isaac's life. We know this, that God reconfirms the covenant promise to Isaac in chapter 26. Isaac, like Abram, like his daddy, isn't perfect. In fact, he pulls a play out of Abram's playbook and he plays this little game of, uh, this is my wife, but really she's my sister and throws his wife under the bus. Isaac does the same thing. He's not perfect in it, but yet we see God who is and God who is faithful. Chapters 25, like I said, to 50 are really focusing on Jacob and that's where we're going to pick up today. We're gonna to look at, as we saw even here, a little bit of the story of the life of Jacob. Let's look at the text together. Again, if you shut your Bibles, you can take those back out and we're just gonna walk through for the next few minutes. We're gonna walk through the text and then we're gonna make some connections and application. Starting in the verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Sometimes he's Old Testament. I mean, that's actually a pretty easy one. And I practice and practice and practice. And then when I get up here, I sound like I'm from Kentucky. Well, that's why, because I'm, I'm from Kentucky. The Aramean, a Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, this isn't fit into the whole side note, but let me just say this. Um, this is the second patriarch who's married to a, a lady, a matriarch, who struggles with barrenness. And in fact, there will be three. That when you think about the patriarchs of the Old Testament, here they are. They are Abraham, they are Isaac, they are Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons that are to follow, but primarily they're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will refer to himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Jacob, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they all three are married to Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And all three of those women will struggle with infertility. All three of those women will be um, barren. And I wanna say this as a side note, because I know there are some of you in this room who struggle with infertility. And infertility is a product of the fall. It is a product of the sin of Adam and Eve. That infertility isn't because of sin specific, but sin in general. That nothing is ever mentioned about these three women being sinful women or their barrenness being a punishment from God. In fact, there are times when these women are more godly than the patriarchs that they are married to. 
and yet they are barren. Then infertility reminds us that this world is broken. That that hasn't, for Luann and I, um, that hasn't been our struggle. I can't imagine um, what may go through your mind as you struggle with infertility, but I would think that this would be something that probably the enemy plants in your mind is what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why me, right? right? Why me? And here's why. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it affected all of us and all of humanity. Why you? Because you live in a cursed, broken, fallen world. The same reason for some struggle with other diseases and other ailments and other things. It's the same reason that we have here. And like with any struggle that we may have with any with any part of the curse that we fall, we, that we fall, we find ourselves underneath with any part of the curse, it creates within us a longing and a dependence, a longing to be freed from that curse and a dependence, crying out to God to be free from it and from the effects of it. It's an opportunity to pray and to trust. And that's what we see here. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, even if you don't conceive, it doesn't mean that you haven't cried out enough. That's not what that means at all. But maybe it's an opportunity for you to do what the exact theme of what's happening here is for you to do. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to put on display the surprising way that God works. In fact, God will say to, um, to, to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a surprising way for God to work. God says, here's a surprising way that I'm gonna work over and over again. My power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. And maybe God's power is being made perfect in you as you trust the Lord and as you uh, trust his ways, and as you trust him, even in the midst of your infertility. Sometimes his power may look like him reversing infertility. I know of couples who have been told they're infertile and now they have multiple children. And sometimes his power and grace may look like that, but sometimes his power and grace may look like contentment and trust in the midst of the struggle. Let's move on to the text. Rebecca, his wife, she conceived. The children struggled, verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, this is sibling rivalry on a whole nother level, is it not? This is sibling, sibling rivalry happening um, inside of their mother's womb. Um, I have an older brother, not, not a twin, but an older brother, and there's nothing that we got in trouble for any more growing up than wrestling and fighting and picking at one another. And yet this is a whole nother level of that because this is happening before they're even born. This is happening inside of her. She's feeling this wrestling happening inside, and so she prays. Rebecca prays, so she went to inquire of the Lord. That just means she prayed. She asked the Lord, Lord, what is this? What is happening to me? In verse number 23, and the Lord said to her, it's a prophetic word here coming to her, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other 
the older shall serve the younger. So this is prophetic more than just being two boys inside of you. He's, what he's saying is, the Lord is saying, there's gonna be two heads of whole nations. The nation of Israel and the nation of Edom are inside of you, heads of nations. The second prophecy comes like this. The second part of the prophecy comes in this. It isn't going to shake out like you think it should. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall, he says, look, serve the younger. That would have been unheard of in that culture and in that time. All of the blessing, all of the inheritance, the birthright, everything would fall upon the older, not the younger. But here the Lord tells her, it's gonna be reversed. It's gonna be upside down from what you think, from what you know. In fact, the older is going to serve the younger. Keep that in mind as we read about how uh, how Jacob gets the birthright, how Jacob inherits that. Remember, that's all happening under God's, uh, after, under God's sovereignty, under God's um, sovereign hand, under his um, sovereign oversight even. It's all prophetic. And look at verse number 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. I mean, I've seen a lot of babies, right? You've seen a lot of babies. I've never seen a hairy red baby. Maybe your baby was. That doesn't mean your baby wasn't cute. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, imagine that. I don't know if any of the other ladies in the room had strange dreams in the later parts of their pregnancy. I know my wife did, and she would tell me about these dreams, and she'd say that the child came out and it smiled and it had the biggest teeth. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, I think that means we're going to be bottle feeding. I think that's what that means. <laughs> that's Esau. Verse number 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand, picture this, his hand holding Esau's heel. Well, maybe don't picture it. And so his name was called Jacob. Now, Jacob's name means this. It means deceiver. His name means cheat. His name means one who takes by the heel. And a list of terrible names that you would give to your children, this would be at the top of the list, would it not? Have you met my son, cheat? right? Have you met my son, Deceiver? I mean, this is worse than naming your boy Sue, is it not? I mean, this is a terrible name for your child, and yet that is what they name him. Now, look at this also. Isaac was how old? 60 years old. Holy cow. <laughs> not there yet, but Isaac's 60 years old whenever she bears the son, and what that means for anybody doing the math, that means there's 20 years of infertility in this couple. It's what it, one of the things it means. It also means that Isaac's getting up there in years and it's not too late for some of you, right? That's what it's saying here. Makes me feel better as a 45-year-old man with a five-year-old daughter. Okay, Lord, follow in suit here. Now look at this, what it also says. It says that when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, like myself. No, I'm not. I'm not. While Jacob was a quiet man. Some of that whole actually want to tell some jokes. What's the deal? Grandfather would be so ashamed. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, as if they're not already enough uh, rivalry between the two boys. Look at what it says, a surefire way to jack your kids up, play favorites. And yet Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. So Isaac's a meat lover. 
But Rebecca, the mom, she loved Jacob. So Jacob's a mama's boy. That's what also it says. And then as an example of the shrewdness and deception, and also as a fulfillment of the prophecy spoken, we've got the next story that Jacob's cooking stew and Esau comes in from the field. He's exhausted and he's hungry. And he says to Jacob, give me some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob says, then sell me your birthright right now. And Esau says, I'm about to die. Now, we really don't understand. Is he really starving to death or is he just famished and super hungry? We really don't know from the story. It seems as if the the truth is he's not starving to death. He's just very hungry. So he's like, I'm so hungry. What good is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, then swear to me now. And so he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau, he gave him bread and lentil stew. Have any of you all ever eaten lentils? You don't? Pastor, Pastor Derek buys these little pouches at Costco of, uh, of lentil soup. It's like, and he keeps them downstairs in the, uh, in, in the kitchen. And so sometimes when we're busy and we can't do lunch, I have like ramen noodles down there and he has this lentil stuff. And one day I, uh, like I was really hungry, kind of like, felt like Esau. I was really, really hungry. And I said to Pastor Derek, do you care if I have a pack of your, your lentils out of the out of, the, out of the kitchen downstairs. He's like, no, help yourself. And I went down there and I fixed him. And then I really felt sorry for Esau. I'm sure whenever he tasted that lentil, he was like, oh my gosh, I gave up my birthright for this. I mean, that's the way I felt. And there he is, immediately remorse fills his heart, no doubt. Some bread and some lentil stew he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And that's a great intro into the life of Jacob. Listen to me, in my opinion, Jacob is the, mo- is the least likable of all of the patriarchs, hands down. In fact, in my opinion, as I read through and I've read again this year, the book of Genesis, I would say Jacob is the least likable of every character, every hero of the faith in the Old Testament, except for maybe the prophet Jonah. Like Jacob is, he's a weasel, he's slimy, his name means deceiver, his name means cheat, and he lives up to his name that as you read about Jacob, you cringe. I mean, it's like a 10 on the cringe factor as you read about him. The Jacob story, it's a story of jealousy and rivalry and deceit and deception, and Jacob is sneaky and he's shrewd. So I said he's a weasel, and here we see he weasels out of Esau's birthright. Um, he, we, he weasels Esau's birthright from him. Now Esau's at fault as well. In fact, scripture will be clear in that, especially in the book of Hebrews, that he's a man who lives for his appetite, that, that um, Esau typifies and, and is an example of a, a man just living for his appetite. He represents fallen humanity. Esau undervalues and ignores the inheritance of God. He squanders the blessing of God for some soup. And Jacob takes advantage of his brother. And that's not very loving that Jacob will deceive and be deceived. Jacob's a mama's boy. He and his mom will deceive Isaac and he'll steal Esau's blessing. He will lie in order to do that. And he will be deceived. He'll be deceived by old uncle Laban. And it will cost him 14 years of his life. The life of Jacob, listen to me, it's supposed to make us cringe. It's supposed to leave us with a bad taste in our mouths. 
And yet there is no doubt that he is in the promised line of God. That in the future, as I said, God will reveal himself to Moses and to to the slaves in Egypt. He will reveal himself. And throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, God will refer to himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the deceiver, and the cheat, Jacob. That Jacob, through unscrupulous means, but under the sovereign ordination of the Lord, Jacob will get the birthright and the blessing. And it leaves us saying, wait a minute, Jacob doesn't deserve any of that. Jacob doesn't deserve Isaac's birthright or Esau's birthright. He certainly doesn't deserve Isaac's blessing because he steals it, downright steals it from him. And if you feel that, and if you say that, you are, you are understanding the life of Jacob correctly. You are understanding what God is doing in the life, in the story of Jacob. I said, Abraham highlights God's divine sovereignty. Isaac, God's divine faithfulness. And Jacob, God's divine grace. Jacob is an example of God's divine sovereign, faithful grace. That we define grace as God's unmerited favor. That's what the word means. It means unmerited favor, but the word unmerited really means undeserved favor. It's undeserved blessing, undeserved acceptance, undeserved love. Even undeserved salvation is found in the word grace. That God chooses, as we've said, God chooses to work in surprising ways, but this is one of the ways that God works that shouldn't surprise us. One of the principles of God is the very principle of grace, that God operates on the principle of grace, not on the principle of achievement or merit. Since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's what Paul says in in Romans chapter three, all. And when he means all, guess what he means by the word all, all. That's you and I, that's Jacob, that's Esau, that's every human that comes from Adam all the way down. All means all, all humanity have sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, anything that God chooses to do in order to save, to bless, to forgive, to reconcile any person to himself is because of God's radical grace and for God's ultimate glory. And this is being displayed time and time and time again. We see it with God choosing a barren couple to create nations through them in Abraham and Sarah. We see it in God choosing Jacob. We see it in the nation of Israel. God chooses the weakest nation, a people that have been enslaved for 400 years, a people who are oppressed, abused, seemingly forgotten, and yet God will choose them in order to reveal himself to them, in order to work through them, in order for them to be the people of God. When it comes time for God to give that nation, that people, a king, God will choose a king that not even that king's daddy chose him. God will choose King David And God will prophetically say, I'm choosing a king out of the line, out of one of Jesse's children. And Jesse's the daddy. And Jesse will take all of his children except David before the prophet Samuel. One of these kids has got to be one. No, 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 wait, something's wrong. Well, we've got this boy at home. 
And that's the one that God has chosen. Most pointedly, we will see God's choosing him choosing what seems weak and what seems upside down to this world. God choosing it in the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you were going to reconcile this world to yourself, would you do it by sacrificing your one and only son? No. And yet Jesus is the chosen son, the chosen Messiah, the chosen lamb of God. He's the chosen one and he comes to this earth and he is despised and he's rejected of men, even though he's chosen of God. We will see it in the cross of Christ where Jesus will die and be buried. But it's through his death that God chooses to defeat death. He chooses to defeat hell. He chooses to defeat the grave. He chooses to make a show out of every satanic power and worldly power openly as he defeats him, as he resurrects his son from the dead. And we see it in our own lives as well that you and I are a testimony and a testament to this very truth that we're singing about and talking about over and over and over again that God chooses, as he says even here in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he chooses what is foolish in order to confound the wise. Look at what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Think about yourselves is what he's thinking of saying. Think about your own heritage and your own life. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's me and that's you. Not many of us were powerful. Not many of us were of noble birth. But God, has, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, why would he do it? Why is God working like this? Well, here it is in verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus Jesus who, became to, who, who came to us, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. That grace is divine acceptance, love, blessing and salvation that comes to those who do not deserve it, win it, earn it. We are Jacob. Dear sisters and brothers in the room who are Christian, you and I, we are Jacob. We're deceivers and we're sinners and we don't deserve anything from God except for his wrath. And yet, if you are saved, it is because of one, one reason and one reason alone. It is God's grace. But let's just be real honest. Grace is hard for us to grasp, is it not? I mean, I think we like it on some theological level, something that's ethereal, that's out here. We like the idea and the concept of grace. We like to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But yet when it comes down to us understanding the depth of grace, it's difficult for us, is it not? Some of it's difficult because we live in a culture that is addicted to achievement. It's addicted to merit. It's a world that judges each other based upon your resume. That doesn't matter if you're the stay-at-home mom or you're the corporate executive. It doesn't really matter who you are, that us in America, our identity is, is bound up tightly into our achievements. And social media compounds this, it fuels this. 
It even intensifies this. Social media becomes a platform for us to boast about ourselves and to boast about our achievements and to boast about everything that we are doing. That doesn't mean fill your newsfeed with you just laying around doing nothing. That's not what that means, but it really is that. It's a place for us to boast about ourselves. And grace is just the very opposite of that. It runs countercultural to everything that we in America know. It doesn't come through achievement. It doesn't come through merit. It comes, it comes. God's blessings comes by grace and grace alone. I know that we wrestle with God's sovereign and divine grace because so many of us recoil at the notion of divine election. Like we can do this, right? Can we talk about it? We can talk about it, can't we? I think I got enough pastoral credit stored up. I hope I do, but let's talk about it. Because the truth is that when the apostle Paul wants to talk about the life of Jacob and Esau, he uses and talks about divine election in Romans chapter nine. This is precisely what Paul does with their lives. He highlights the truths that are being taught in divine election. What he's saying is what you're seeing in Jacob and Esau is you're seeing a type, an example of God's divine grace being manifested in his purposes of election. Romans chapter nine, verses 10 through 16, he says, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And then now Paul quotes from Malachi 1, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul asked? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, look, I will have mercy. I will pour out my grace on whom I will pour out my grace. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse number 16, so then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but it solely rests, 100% of it rests on God who has mercy. Now listen, I, I don't bring this up. Oh gosh, I don't bring this up in order to win an argument or to convert you all to, to, to Calvinism or anything like that. I mean, the, the truth is that I'm not even a five-point Calvinist. For those of you that know what that means, I apologize. I'm actually a seven-point Calvinist. No, I'm joking. That's not even such a thing. This isn't about that. What this is about, I, I mean, we... We get to, we get to think about these things. We get to wrestle with these things. We get to wrestle with the idea notion of, of God's justice and man's responsibility. We get to wrestle with doctrines like this and divine election and choice and free will. And God's election doesn't negate our responsibility to respond. In fact, it's what enables us to respond. And we must submit ourselves to God. Yes, we must submit ourselves to God and commit ourselves to him. I don't say this to stir up any thoughts. I know that I recoil at the thought of it and still at times recoil at the thought of it that my salvation isn't a product of me, but it's ultimately a product of God. I still recoil at that. I say it today because in the words of John Stott, the doctrine of election is a pillow 
on which to rest our weary heads. And the truth is, I think a lot of us get weary. Do we not? Gosh, I know I do. I get weary from the fight of my own sin. I get weary with wondering, do I match up? I get weary wondering, does God really love us? And God's divine grace being manifested in his sovereign election is one of the most encouraging truths and doctrines and concepts in the entire Bible. Yes, it is humbling because it strips us of our pride. It puts all of the glory on him and we share none of it in him. But it also means this. It means that your salvation is not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon your feeble hold on God, but on God's firm grip on you. It means that you don't have to perform to measure up in order to be accepted by God. It casts you totally and wholly on God and his grace, which is a good place to be. It floods you with gratitude as you consider his mercy and loving sinners like us in spite of our sin. Yet you and I, we live in the pressure cooker of this life under the constant pressure to be doing something with our lives. And this shows up in our theology. It shows up in our salvation. We need to be doing something to accomplish something. And this affects everything about our lives. And yet the Christian faith, it comes to us as good news. And it's good news that you and I, we believe and we receive. It's not a system of works and an achievement. It's not a ladder to which you ascend in order, in order to win acceptance with God. It's not a list of rules or list of ethics. It's not about going to church or training your kids or living a clean moral lifestyle. It's not a do type of faith. Understand that. That's not good news if it's more and more that you must do, but it's a faith that's based and solely rests upon what Christ has done. It's not a do faith, a faith that is all about what you can do for God. Instead, Christianity is a done faith and it's about you trusting in what Jesus Christ has already done for you. And then you simply getting to bask in that and be transformed by that. Being forever changed by the truth of that grace, being transformed by the great love of Jesus that he has for sinners like me and you, that he would stoop so low to choose us and to call us his own. That Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live and he died the death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus has achieved it all. Everything that could be achieved. Jesus has achieved that for us. He's won all of God's merit and then he graciously gives it to whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. To whosoever will cry out for his forgiveness and for his grace, Jesus will richly give that. He will lavish that upon you. He will give you all of the benefits and all you get to do from here on out is to trust and to rest and to enjoy and to be transformed by his love and his grace. And in fact, we get to be reminded of that even this morning. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we come to broken by, uh, a bread that represents Christ's body that's been broken for us. We come to small, juice, uh, small cups of juice that represents Christ's blood that has been shed for us. And what it does is uh, the Apostle Paul says that remembering the Lord's Supper in this ordinance, remembering Christ and what Christ has done for us and the gospel of Jesus in this ordinance, that, it, that you're preaching the gospel to yourself. 
This is, a, this is a preaching of the gospel. And what you're saying as you take it is, my salvation came from the outside of me. You're not producing bread. You're not producing juice inside of you, but it is something that rests solely upon something that is outside of me, upon what Christ has done for me. And so as you come this morning, dear, dear believers, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as you come this morning remembering the grace, the great grace of God that's been displayed in the gospel and him calling like he called Abraham and him saving and providing a substitute lamb like he did for Isaac and him looking at Jacob and despite all of Jacob's weaselness, if that's even a word, all of his sliminess, yet God's saying, you're mine and I choose you and I give you my grace upon you. That's the beauty of the gospel that we get to preach and proclaim and believe. And by it, by it, we are being transformed. We're being changed by that. And so as you come this morning and you remember Jesus's great grace and Jesus's love that he's placed upon you, remember it's not your weak, fickle faith holding on to Jesus that keeps you saved, but it's Jesus's firm grip on you. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that I get to preach the good news of the gospel, your gospel, to your church this morning, Lord. Help us to believe. Help us to believe and to see your great grace for your glory, Jesus. May our eyes be open and may we believe, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those in the room that may have yet to believe. They may be still trying to climb some ladder. They may still be trying to pretend that they don't fall under that Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They may try to look at their achievement. They may try to look at their morality. They may try to look at their good works and think that somehow that's gonna win them your forgiveness and win them your love, Lord. And I pray that even this morning that the rug would be pulled out from under all of that kind of thinking. And that we will see, even as we, as we visualize, as we visualize the proclamation of the gospel as good news coming to us, seeing that it's something from the outside of us, a proclamation that we couldn't do it, but Christ, you have done it for us, that we would take it, eat it, devour it, receive it, even this morning. Even this morning, Lord, I pray that in your powerful name. Amen.